I gave you a handout, and it begins where the last one ended, and that was talking about Isaiah, City of God. So if it looks familiar to you, that's why. You're not crazy. I just thought it was cleaner to just give you another handout and kind of start where we kind of finished last time. And we're going to go through three chapters today. Uh, fourth, chapter four is really short, so there's not a whole lot I need to say about that one because it's just it's this little gospel ray in this kind of section of law again, um, but we'll get there. So before I show you the day of the Lord, I want to just go back and kind of go to where we ended, which is Isaiah 2, that talks about the mountain of the Lord. So if you're following along, I'm on Isaiah 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. And uh, again, this is, I think, contextually, in the midst of an election and the results and lawsuits and everything else, this is a good way to kind of reset and get a, a greater perspective on things um, as far as things go. So here's Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so that's where we ended off last time. And we mentioned that famous passage about beating uh, their weapons into pruning shears and the hooks and stuff like that. And so that's where we ended. And I just wanted to kind of point out, I gave you a, a little grid on there. It says Isaiah, city of God. And so remember that Zion, because we're going to run into this again. Zion does not necessarily always mean just the physical location of Jerusalem. It's where God dwells with his people. So the new Jerusalem is, is Zion, right? So we need to make sure that we remember that. Sometimes we uh, get so obsessed with physical Jerusalem. Not that that's wrong, and at the time the ancient Jews would have certainly recognized that, and that's what they would have initially thought of. But Zion is where God's people are. So you can see this. This is from the Lutheran Study Bible. I just kind of copied that over for you. But Zion is the place where Yahweh located his gracious presence for people and made himself accessible. In the Old Testament, it's where one goes to commune and have fellowship with the Lord, which is why you have that phrase right there, to go up to Jerusalem. The, the, the Psalms, we have the Psalms of Ascent towards the end of Psalms because it sits kind of on a, like a mountain of sorts, right? And uh, most of the places around are in a valley, so you actually go up to Jerusalem, right? That's just, just kind of familiar language for them. It was a technical term for making a journey or a pilgrimage to where God is. And it's, of course, symbolic that you are going up, right? There's a lot of symbolism about that, not just literally geographically, but also that you are getting into the presence of God, okay? So there's an up, both physically and spiritually, that takes place when they went to Zion. Fair enough? So that's what this is about when it mentions that. And so you get these idea of these visions of Zion. You can see the different references. And the first reference is at the very bottom. Zion will draw all nations to herself. This is not just, in this case, the Jerusalem of David and Solomon at this point. Now we're talking about kind of an end of all things where all nations, this is a messianic prophecy of sorts in which all nations are gathered as the people of God. Okay, And again, some people will say no. Some people will reject it. There's a law point in this too, and we'll get to that in a second. And then you see some other ones. The exiles will return. God will protect Zion. God will purge and purify Zion. We take refuge in the God who dwells there, and it's the place where Yahweh rules as king. All of those different passages, this is a theme throughout Isaiah. So I just put that in there before we get to the day of the Lord. Because remember that, that the ultimate goal here is that God's grace and his remaking of the world is the ultimate end of all this, because we get a lot of destruction as we go through this. 
But the ultimate goal, the ultimate destination, is still that God rules the nations, right, and, and with his people. So there's an ultimate restoration of all things. That's always in the background, both the first coming of Jesus and the second. That's actually what makes this tricky, by the way, is some of the interpretations of Isaiah. Is this talking about the first coming or the second coming? Right? Because this one, we would argue, might have more to do with the second coming of Christ, where Isaiah 53, where it talks about he's wounded for our transgressions, is the first coming of Christ. And trying to parse that in Isaiah, that's where it gets fun being a biblical interpreter, because some of them are not as clear. But this one definitely seems to indicate that we're talking about um, the second coming. Or the other option is the church, because the uh, unlike the people of God in the Old Testament, where you have kind of an ethnic... Israel. Now, other people could come. They could become proselytes. But where it was kind of uh, in a geographic, a socio-political realm in history, the church, of course, is universal, right? So it, it, there's all nations, all tribes, all tongues. There isn't an ethnic requirement to join the church. And so you could make the argument that this also kind of talks about the church age. But like anything else in scripture, there's a now and a not yet. So the ultimate fulfillment, of course, where God's truly ruling the nations in justice and Zion is this place of righteousness that hasn't happened yet. As much as we love the church, we're still simultaneously sinner and saint in the church. And so it's, not, it's now and not yet, right? And that's, there's always that tension. So now what happens in Isaiah is we get this day of the Lord passage. And it was awesome timing because if you're in church today, whether you went to the 8.30 or going to the 11 o'clock later, uh, we actually read about the day of the Lord in Amos. And it's the most famous example of the day of the Lord, but it's also a, a theme in Isaiah and some of the other Old Testament prophets, this day of the Lord. And so I'm going to show you this. This is the Bible Project's take on the Day of the Lord. I'm going to add a couple things to it. It's, not, it's, it's okay as far as it goes, but again, I have my caveats. But it's so helpful from a visual standpoint to thematically say this. And it's going to reference the Amos passage. And the Day of the Lord that we see in these passages is honestly kind of terrifying. Um, if you really think about what's being said. Especially the reading from Amos. Um, and so we're going to look at that passage and look at Isaiah's passage, which isn't exactly uh, you know, a walk in the park either. <laughs> And kind of walk through what this means, because it's both law and gospel. And the day of the Lord, for the, for, to be honest, sounds more like law initially. And you'll see why. So here's the day of the Lord passage, as interpreted by Bible Project with some caveats. Here we go. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book. When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. 
And God knows how devastating this could be, a whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward and he's swallowed up by death. Now after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb that's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills, was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon, the oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So is Jesus gonna confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel, all humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well, and we keep building new versions of Babylon. Right, and so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it, Armageddon, final judgment. How is Jesus gonna finish off evil? Well, it's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? 
That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. Thanks for watching the Bible right, Project. So that was this, this uh, video is one of many that we take on that, and it's not bad um, in as much, but there's some things they kind of take the they soften the blow a little bit, and so I want to kind of talk about this a little bit more in detail because they don't really actually read from the prophecy itself; they just kind of thematically explain it, which isn't bad. And again, some of what they said, pointing it to Christ, is of course always a good thing, right? So it's not like it's wrong. But it's more like what they're not saying. You know, that sort of thing is the stuff that I want to kind of uh, to, to add on to it. But overall, it's not a bad take on this in that we sometimes think the day of the Lord, we only think of Revelation or we only think of the delivery of, you know, during the Exodus. When in reality, it's an overall thematic thing that we experience even now. You know, is, you know when Jesus goes around preaching the gospel, he says, repent, not for the kingdom of God is coming, but the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It's right now. And so, again, that now and not yet tension. You've got to remember that when we read these prophecies because they often have temporary fulfillment or partial fulfillment, but then there's an ultimate fulfillment later, and they're both true. And so that gets a little tricky because, remember, prophecy for the most part is not so much about forecasting the future. I mean, that happens sometimes, but it's actually more about truth-telling and giving somebody a word that they need to hear even though when they hate you for it, right? Which is why Jeremiah ends up in a well and why Isaiah in uh, church and Jewish tradition is considered is sawn in half. I don't know if you know that. That's supposedly how he dies. Um, but you can go through all the different prophets and also the apostles. Is that when you have that gift of prophecy and you tell people things that they're supposed to hear but they don't want to hear it, they tend to not react well, right? And so that's, that's kind of what happens with a lot of this. So the day of the Lord often is just truth-telling, and, and that's what some of this is. Now, some of it is prophecy. You know, like in Daniel, when you get the four kingdoms, and you can actually go through history and actually identify the four kingdoms. I mean, that's very direct. Most of the time, though, it's a little bit more general, and it's just talking about some thematic things about how God looks at the evil of the world and how he's going to ultimately say no. Um, this gets into the topic of heaven and hell and some other things, too. So we'll see, how, see where it leads um, as we go. So I have some study notes for you, but I want to I read through this passage, too. So Isaiah 6, um, no, it's not 6, sorry, Isaiah 2 Verses 6 through 22. I just want you to hear this. And now Isaiah is talking to God in this prophecy. And, this is, and if you have a Bible that, uh, that changes the way it, it looks on the page, you can tell that in Hebrew this was originally a poem. So it's going to be kind of delineated in lines or in stanza form. That's on purpose because it was poetic in the original Hebrew. Okay, so here we go. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to that what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. That's an interesting phrase. We'll talk about that in a second, because that doesn't sound like God, but we'll keep going. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust before, before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day, 
against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills. Can you hear the poetry now, how this is working, okay? Um, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idol shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, where he rises to terrify the earth. In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. And before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? <laughs> That's how the chapter ends. Whoa. I mean, this is about as, about as harsh as it gets in Scripture. And it ends with, man doesn't mean anything anyways. Why are you worried about him? I mean, that, that message just ends. It's almost like this little, this little verse to kind of like drive home the point. Here's how great this day of the Lord is going to be or how terrifying it's going to be. Oh, and by the way, as a human being, you don't really matter a whole lot anyways. I mean, that's basically how this ends. That's pretty harsh. So, so how do we, how do we uh, deal with passages like this? I mean, this is one way to emphasize how Christ kind of in the day of the Lord is really, he's not out for our blood, he's out to defeat sin, death, and the devil. And there's truth in that, and I want to acknowledge that. That's not a bad way of looking at this, that who is the real enemy here? If you, and remember, we, we, we call this, it's, this is the science of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means the, the science of interpreting scripture. And it's not just scripture, it could be any text. The science of interpretation is called hermeneutics. So if you ever hear that term, that's where that comes from, okay? It's not complicated. It's just the science of interpretation. One of our hermeneutical principles is that scripture interprets scripture. So when you read all the books of the Old and New Testaments, it sheds light on the parts that you don't really understand, right? So when you look at this day of the Lord in Isaiah, you do kind of what they did. Okay, let's go back to Genesis. Let's go to Revelation. Let's kind of see how this day of the Lord theme works its way out. Who's the real enemy? And if you go back to Genesis, it's the evil one. It's the devil, right? And it's sin, it's brokenness, it's rebellion, it's mortality, it's all those things we associate with the fall. That's the real enemy here. And so when God judges the nations and he says stuff like this, the question is, is how did they get there in the first place, right? And so interpreting it that way, like this, is helpful. That's why I do like the framing that they do here. However, the thing they leave out is what about those who simply persist in that rebellion? You see what I'm saying? That's kind of what's left out here. And that's where it does become terrifying. Because when you read this, it doesn't sound like there's nobody there. It's not this universal Christian message where everybody's saved. It sounds like God's, it sounds like people are like trying to bury themselves in the ground because they're so afraid. It's kind of edgy, right? So how do we deal with some of those themes also when we go through this? Okay, so let's talk through this text a little bit. And I've got some notes for you. And I'll kind of go through the, your outline just to kind of help us just think about this. So it says the day of the Lord, and I just want to just uh, emphasize this, it's not necessarily a 24-hour day or a specific calendar, but a period of time when God executes judgment or specially reveals his power and rulership, which again could be in a place in history, but it could also be in the future, and there's an ultimate day of the Lord, that now and not yet. Okay. If you, by the way, this is just a word, that, and all of you in here I'm sure are good about this, but if somebody says they know the date of the day of the Lord, run away. Nobody knows. Okay. Actually, Pastor Dinger's sermon is going to mention that when he talks about the three parables that Jesus tells about the end times. If you heard it at 8.30, if you're hearing it at 11, he's right on on this one on this, and that it's be prepared because no one knows. So if somebody says, I know, ignore them, okay, or run away, because that's somebody who's teaching falsely. Okay, just 
throwing that out there. All right. So now we have this passage in Amos, and that's the passage they referenced in the Bible Project. And I actually have it. It's odd. This is like current timing. It's one of the readings today. So it was like fortuitous. It's actually one of the readings. Listen to this passage in Amos. So this is from the 830 Bolton. It's the same thing in 11. Okay? Same thing in 11. I have it in front of me. Listen to what it says. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. So it's like out of the frying pan into the fire. It's kind of the, that's from The Hobbit, by the way. This is my Lord of the Rings reference of the day. Okay. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. <laughs> oh, I finally made it. Crunch, right? Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. That sounds just like Isaiah 1, just before this, when God says, I've had enough of your sacrifices, right? It's a very similar theme, okay? Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And then we get this famous quote that's often decontextualized, okay? But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-falling stream. Some people will quote that verse without the rest of it. And you're like, oh, that sounds so nice and poetic. And they use it for, like, politics and some other things. Um, do you know what that's talking about, where that comes from? <laughs> uh, are you sure you want this kind of justice? You know, just, just throw it out there. It's, it's often decontextualized when people quote this. It's often used in, like, I mean, and I'll be blunt, it's often used in our political discourse and, like, racial politics and other things. And not that it's 100% decontextualized, but it often is. Okay, so just, just throwing it out there. In the context of that passage, it's pretty, uh, pretty harsh, okay? And so how do we deal with this? So what details or supplements, now I spelled that wrong, does one find about the day of the Lord? What sort of day is this? And it really is a day of judgment. And according to Amos, it's kind of dark. It's kind of scary. And we have this kind of horror idea, even in Isaiah. He adds this, right? This is going to be terrifying, and it's dark, and all these other different things. And so what I want to say about this is that the day of the Lord that we see when these judgment modus is God finally saying enough. And I think we need to realize this. Who are we compared to God? And who's on trial? We need to remind ourselves. There's a, a C.S. Lewis has this, uh, this work called God in the Dock. And what he means by the dock is the docket, like the court docket. So who's being judged, right? And that's how they say that in England. You're on the dock. We would say we have a, you know, we have a hearing is how we would say it. But you're in the dock, and so who's on trials? So if God's in the dock and we're trying to judge God, then we're going to see this, and we're going to say, well, that's pretty harsh. I wouldn't do that. There's a G.K. Chesterton <laughs> quote, by the way, that I love this. And he's, children who are naturally innocent desire justice, but adults who are naturally wicked desire mercy. It's an interesting quote, and if you think about that, it's a little, uh, I think it's more, I think it hits a little closer than we think when he says that. It's an amazing one. Ch children who are naturally innocent desire justice. That's not fair. How often do kids say that? <laughs> right? It's, but when we get older and we realize how much that we're broken and we realize how many mistakes we've made, we desire mercy. Right? It's a great quote um, from Chesterton. Um, but anyways, that kind of, so God, and you can see I put this in this, because we break creation and we break ourselves. Okay, so those who rebel against God are breaking themselves, and this is God's universe. He rules it. So this is where I do appreciate the Bible project here, because they showed God originally creates the world and wants us to be kind of co-rulers with him. He designates to us, hey, be good stewards of what I've given you. Rule over this, right? Subdue the earth and rule it. 
fill it, multiply it. So he gives us this mandate and we screw it up, all of us. We're both by choice and by nature, right? It's both and, not neither or, it's both and. Both by choice and by nature, we screw it up. At some point, if God owns it and he makes the rules, he says, stop breaking my stuff. Is that wrong of him to do, right? Because think about the other part of this. If God never says enough, is he just? Right? So, I mean, we, you get what I'm saying? I'm not saying we, we're longing for judgment, but if God owns it and he's just, he's probably going to make the rules and at some point say, stop breaking my things. And by the way, since we're created in his image and we're breaking ourselves, we're included in that statement. It's not just the marring of the created world. It's also us, right? And, of course, the ultimate saying no to is the forces of evil, right, that we call the spiritual forces of darkness. But it's an interesting thing. So persistent sin and no solution to sin, death, and evil would be a problem with the character of God. Because then God would not be just. Okay? But, Pastor also makes this point. This is, this is great. This is like, this is like fit my, my, uh, my, my Sunday school better than I ever thought it would. <laughs> Actually, he started preaching. He gave me the text. And I was like, wow, this is, this is fortuitous. Maybe God wants us to learn something on this. I don't know. I'm not one of those pre-people, by the way, that says, you know, oh, God gave me a word today. That's not... He already has given us his word, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm not that guy. But, but that being said, that being said, I do think that he sometimes works in ways that, that are beyond our understanding. There would be a problem with the character of God, though. If he held off, there, we, we would have an issue with a God who is, not, um, who is not just. Now, why does he wait so long? We all know the answer. He wants heaven to be full. He does not desire the death of the sinner. We see that in Ezekiel and all throughout Scripture. Uh, Peter says that. He is not waiting forever in the way that man measures this, but he desires that all be saved. That's actually, we get that in the New Testament. So the reason God's taking so long with the day of the Lord is because he doesn't want to have people hiding for the hills and running in the rocks. He doesn't want that. That's why Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, anyways, continuing on that. We do have, um, by the way, we have some... Uh, illustrations of how Israel has compromised with the surrounding culture. It seems strange to us in Isaiah, but if you hear this, one's obvious, the fortune tellers like the Philistines. Well, that's a really obvious example. But then we get some other phrases, like they strike hands with the children of foreigners. We don't really know exactly what that means. It could be some sort of like religious festival, like they're doing some sort of dance, you know what I mean? It could be that they're uh, striking up bargains with people that they shouldn't be striking up bargains with, like it's just a handshake. We're not exactly sure what that striking of hands means poetically, but in some way they're compromising with the people around them. That's the implication. Um, they have lots of riches. Chariots and horses were considered excessive in this culture. Only the rich and famous had them. And so if they're filled with chariots and horses, it means they're materially so well-blessed and they have more than they'll ever need is kind of the, what's, what's happening here. So horses and chariots were not common unless you're in the military or you're the king or you're the prince or you're the wealthy silk merchant or whatever. Most people did not have them. They were excessive. It was a luxury good. Okay, so it's, that's why that's pointed out there. So then we have this interesting phrase, and I have this on letter E on your hand out there. It says, do not forgive them. You read that and you're... Whoa. Doesn't Jesus say from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? How is the character of God being you know, uh, emphasized here? Do not forgive them? That doesn't sound like God. I put it in your hand. I see you, got the, you already got, got the answer here. It's not saying, I want all idolaters to go to hell. That's probably not what the character of God is saying, right? Probably not. God's calling to repentance. But I think what it does show, and my commentary, and you can look at study Bibles on this and some other things, it's they should be decisively and utterly eliminated for the people's own good, these practices. So you look at the context of what he says, right? This is verses 9 and 10. 
So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. And here it says, uh, not a call to withhold God's true forgiveness, but a plea that idolatry, too significant to be ignored, be decisively ended. That's how I have that in my study notes. You might have something different there. But the idea is that they're not asking for God not to forgive anyone. The idea is, is God stop this from happening. Okay, stop letting this last so long. Longing for God's justice in this case to put an end to these things. Okay, and have zero tolerance for idolatry. Okay, if anything, it's a plea for intolerance of idolatry. That could be another way of saying that. So it's interesting. Just just throwing it out there. So before I keep moving on, is this is this helping with Isaiah? I mean, I'm just trying to trying to uh, feel the room a little bit because I want to see how this would apply. Because this is hard. Because if we're trying to apply Scripture to our lives. Other than, man, I really hope God's merciful and gracious to me because I don't want to be the one hiding in the rocks. Other than that, there's got to be some other applications here. And I think we can get there um, as we go because it's a little, it's a little trickier. Okay, into the rocks, you get the obvious one, the absolute lack of refuge. When, you can't, when you're so afraid that you can't hide, it's kind of like the uh, animal that buries its head in the ground and thinks it's hiding, but it's really not. That's the image I kind of get with that. Or like your kid. Have you ever seen a kid? Like, cover his eyes and say, you can't see me. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. <laughs> That's kind of the image I get from this. Is I'm going to try to grind myself into the rocks, into the dust. It's the kid saying, you can't see me, when it's obvious that they're there. <laughs> or the animal that buries its head in the ground and you can still see it. That's kind of the image. At least that helps me illustrate what this phrase means. That you're trying to hide from God and you look ridiculous. You look like the two-year-old saying, you can't see me. Yeah, go for it. This is a recurring phrase throughout Scripture, too, because... You know, woe unto the mothers who are suckling at the time. Yeah. Uh, the mountains will fall on you. And, I mean, this is just a continuous theme. Yeah. Throughout the whole thing. Yeah, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, right? Fall and that sort of yeah. thing, because you're so exposed. And this is where, again, the Bible project can be helpful, because you go back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve fall, what do they do? <coughs> they hide, and they want to clothe themselves, because they realize they're exposed. It's that same theme. In the presence of a holy and righteous God, we realize how we have nothing to go. Isaiah's gonna, this is going to happen to Isaiah, too. Isaiah 6, he's going to get a vision of heaven. He's going to say, I'm done. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to die. That's, that's his, that, right? And so that holiness motive is part of this. In the presence of a holy God, because he is so good and so righteous, um, I'll actually show you, the Bible Project has, man, I might even show you, if I have time at the end of the day, show you a, how it's a positive thing, even though it sounds scary. Um, that's probably my favorite one. I showed you one that I'm like, okay, this is okay. I'm going to show you one of my favorite ones uh, later on about God's holiness. We can get there because it will help us think about this a little bit better too. Okay? So anyone who is prideful or arrogant, thinking they have it all or doesn't need God, will be brought low because only God alone deserves to be exalted. Notice that he's talking about taking things down, and I say that early on. So look at all the, in, the, in the poetry of this, right? We have, oh, right here. The cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, the ships of Tarshish, Everything keeps being brought down. A, a Lebanese cedar was like the ultimate building material of this time. Okay, so this is like the big, huge, thick lock. If you ever been to Glacier National Park and seen the cedar trees, you can't even put your arms around them. It takes like three people just to get your arms around a cedar tree. That's the image here. These are the cedars in the mountains of Lebanon. And so you would import these logs. Even in places like Egypt, they would bring logs from Lebanon or in Greece or in Rome because they were so large and they were considered the best wood building materials. So God's using this to say, this is like the best you can do and I'm against this too. The ships of Tarshish, this is like craftsmanship. This is the ultimate, it's like driving a Ferrari in the ship world. Okay, if that helps you, it's, this is the Ferrari, this is the Mercedes, Mercedes Benz, this is like the ultimate 
kind of construction, the best well-put-together car. In the ancient world, that's what the ships of Tarshish were. They were the, the ultimate expression of human craftsmanship. So not only we have the strength of nature with the trees and, the, and, and Bashan, the oaks, right? An oak tree is always considered a strong tree. That's in a lot of cultures, okay? We have oaks and we have cedars. Now we have human craftsmanship. So both its nature or the things that human is doing, God is taking those things down. So it's a poetic way of illustrating that the sources of normal strength God is going to go after also. Okay? So those who persist in idolatry and worship idols will eventually run out of time. That's the part they kind of leave out. Right? It's like the, the, that side of it, and it's good. I'm glad we're focusing on Jesus, and we should focus on Jesus. That's a good thing. We should. It's always about Christ alone, and I want to emphasize that. However, there is an edge to this, because if you look, eventually it's the end. They're going to cast away, they're going to try to enter the rocks and the cliffs before the terror of the Lord, when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man, in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? I mean, it's pretty, pretty dark in that sense. It sounds like they're just gone, right, at this point. And so there is an edge to this um, as far as things go. So if you look at the best, I, and I ask this as a question. We don't have to name all these in our, in our minds. Some of these are true for all cultures. But in Western society, what are some of our idols, right? Because idolatry is anything that sets itself up against God. If it gets between you and God, it's an idol. You can make your family an idol. You can make your job an idol. It's not just a, a silver icon that you have in the corner that you burn incest to. Okay, that's, I mean, that's what they did here, or, you know, the golden calf. We think of, like, idolatry being actual physical idols. But through scripture, idolatry is anything that gets in between your relationship with God. If God is not first and something else is first, that's your idol. That's the implication. So my question, then, is in Western society, what are some of our idols, and how are we doing? This is where there's law and gospel, and this is the application point. Because what idols have we set up that God will bring down? Just some questions to ask. You don't have to answer. I've got a bunch of them. But <laughs> if, I, if I ever write a book, by the way, I want to write a book, and I'm going to call it American Gods with a hashtag, because there's this really weird Neil Gaiman thing that's out there. But um, things like things that you wouldn't expect that have become our gods. For example, can we make a god out of equality? We can. Can we make a god out of, and uh, the word I would use is egalitarianism, that all our choice, and the way I would go with that is there's a good side of equality, which is we're all equal because we're creating the image of God. That's good. Bad equality is all our choices are equal. <laughs> That's, you know, you know what I'm saying? So the, 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 we, I, would, I would parse that. Um, democracy can be an idol, or politics in general can be an idol, and that's a really thing that we need to talk about right now, is I got people online either rejoicing like Jesus has already come back because of the election, <laughs> and then I got people rejoicing, and then I got people thinking like it's you know the end of days because somebody else didn't get elected. It's neither, okay? They're human beings, and if you put your trust there, it's gonna fail. Psalm 146 <laughs> says, put not your trust in princes and mortal men who are unable to save. If you put your faith there, you're gonna be disappointed, and the government has become your God. And if the government's your God, we got a problem. Okay, so that'd be another idolatry. <laughs> but then we've got the classic ones: money, sex, praise, six, you know, you know, all those things. That 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 would have been true in that culture, in our culture. But we have some unique ones. Technology can be a god and a false idol. Um, technology is one that I think a lot of people don't realize. We still, at this moment, this is where I'm the history teacher, so forgive me. At this moment, we don't realize the cost of our technology yet. We just don't. I mean, because if you look. I mean, there's this famous quote. There's an author named Jacques Barzin. He wrote a book, From Dawn to Decadence. It's thick. It's not, I mean, it's not bedside reading. Let's just say that. Okay, it's thick. It's called From Dawn to Decadence, and it's 500 years of cultural life, and it's for Western civilization, and it was his magnum opus. He was an art critic and a, and a music biographer and a kind of a man of letters. He's one of the kind of an old school professor 
um, and he, uh, a French professor. Well, he wrote this book in 2000, From Dawn to Decadence, and he kind of makes this point that as you look at the way that kind of the culture is headed with these idols and stuff like that, of how things are, f it's, it's a fascinating read, and, and, and the fracturing of this. And I just wanted to kind of bring that up because he talks <laughs> about things like manners, and he talks about how, um, I'm trying not to get too, too, on a, too on a rabbit trail here, so I'm going to sum up my thoughts here. He, he, he talks about manners, he talks about culture, he talks about individualism and all these other things, and how these things keep popping up, right, in the West, and how we're dealing with this. And the individual, in particular, I think is something that we're going to have to look at, too, that I determine my own truth, and I determine who I am. I am the God of my universe, which, again, goes back to I determine good and evil for myself. And so it's a fascinating read if you get to Don the Decadence um, as far as that. So, Mike, just out of curiosity, just, uh, do you have any others or, do you, or have I covered a lot of them already? <laughs> yeah, what are you going to add? I couldn't add anything to what you said, but I, I wanted to comment that uh, during all this uncertainty we've had with COVID, elections, and all this stuff, the hardest thing I've had to do is in my prayers remember, thy will be done. Right. Because I want my will to be done. Right. In all things. Yeah. And that's that's hard to pray. And we all f and, and and if we're honest, again, we're simultaneously saint and sinner. We all fail at this at some point, right? Where we want our way and not God's way. And the other thing I like to remind myself too: Do you think elections and pandemics surprise God? <laughs> I mean, that's just I I don't know. I, for some reason, we think it's like this shock. When, I mean, if he's outside the timeline, doesn't he see everything? Just, just throw out there. So anyways, that's, I wanted to bring that up. And again, you can think of your own, and maybe in your own personal life. So that's just, I, I was talking society, and it's easy to pick on societal things. But then the other part of this, of course, from application is, what are your own personal idols sometimes? Right? As, as, a, as a teacher, and as a father, and as a husband, I'm sure I make idols out of what could be even good things. Right? Food is actually a good thing. But if food is dominating your life, it's an idol. Okay? Family is a good thing. Being married is a good thing. But if your spouse or your kids are actually more important than God, they become an idol. And that's a problem. And, it's, and I'm saying that I do, and, I, and we do it in ways that we don't even think we're doing it. Um, it could be just time, right? Now, when you have a little baby, they demand all your time, okay? And I don't think that's evil. God gave you that baby on a per, you know, he's teaching you patience, number one, right? <laughs> so, so, I mean, so, I mean, those things, I mean, I'm not saying that that's, that it's, that you, that there won't be times in your life where you're, spending more time with the Lord and other times. I mean, he's giving you vocation and jobs, and by doing your vocation, you could be worshiping God even in that, right? That's the old Martin Luther, changing diapers is a holy vocation, <laughs> right? So, I mean, there's, there's vocational elements to this, but the point is, is that I think in our own personal lives, we could probably think of some idols, and again, I'm not asking you to air your laundry. It's, I'm just saying it's a way to think about this passage and how we, to be God's faithful, um, you know, need to live like God's faithful. And then the gospel part of this is, okay because he knows we're going to fail is okay which is why he gives us his word and the means of grace like baptism and communion and other things to keep us going to refill us now you can see how this really ties into pastor sermon so all today that's why it's just it's been awesome all right so then again judgment so then we get it again and it keeps going let's see how much time i have left okay because i might want i want to show you the holiness thing because that'd be a, a good one because it'll get us to isaiah 6 anyways later um, this is how it works. For behold, I'm just going to read parts of this and just point out some highlights. You can read the whole thing for yourself because Isaiah's got 66 chapters. I'm not going to get through every one, okay? All right. For behold, the Lord and God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and the support of water. It sounds like a siege. This is a siege. You cut off the supplies, okay? It's a siege. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. They shouldn't have diviners, by the way, okay? 
uh, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. The expert in charms is a sorcerer. Okay, so these are, that's, that's what that is. Um, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. In other words, all the good leaders, all the competent ones have been taken away. God's going to let infants and rulers rule, right? In other words, they're going to be incompetent and inexperienced because there's nobody left. Okay, and look at this. A man will take, look at verse 6. A man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak. You shall be our leader. This heap of ruins will be under your rule. Nobody wants to do it. So they're in kind of a closet somewhere. Oh, you be the guy in church. It's going to be that, it's going to be that problematic, Okay. And that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of the people. He'll say, you be your leader. No, I don't want it. I don't want to be your leader. Just, it's going to be that bad that nobody even wants it, which is the opposite of what we're dealing with now. So you want to talk about, the, about pride and stuff. Yeah, we, we talk about these elections and stuff like that. I don't think we are at a point where nobody wants it. There's no people. That is, that is impossible. And then, look what we have again. Another reference to Sodom. Because this is the second time in Isaiah now that Israel is, is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is in verse 9. For the look of their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. In other words, they're so depraved that they don't care anymore. It's one thing to have sins in secret or to be ashamed of your habits and your addictions. In this case, they are bragging and they are openly immoral in this case, because that's what we see with Sodom. Hey, look, where are those new guys? Bring them out here. They, they're, not, they're not trying to do it in secret. This is out, out in the absolute open. And so you can see, I see this from Gregory, I have a quote from Gregory the Great. This is the 600s AD. Um, by the way, he is actually a pope that's included on Lutheran and Calvinist saintless, to give you an idea of how, like, he's considered like one of the last kind of old school antiquity leaders of the Bishop of Rome. So he's acknowledged by all Christians, is the reason I say that, Eastern Orthodox also. Again, look at this, they are to be admonished that if they are not afraid of being wicked, they should at least be ashamed of being seen for what they are, right? <laughs> okay, if you, don't, if you don't feel bad, at least hide it. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying. Often a sin that is concealed is avoided because a mind that is ashamed to be taken for what it does does not fear to be in fact, is sometimes ashamed to be in fact of what it avoids appearing to be. That's a really wordy way of basically saying that sometimes when people have ha habits or like dark habits, they know that they're wrong and sometimes because they're trying to hide it, it actually stops them from doing it because they're looking for like secret ways of pulling it off. And so it kind of keeps it under wraps. But that's not what's happening here with, with this idea. On the other hand, when a person is shamelessly and notoriously wicked, then the more freely he commits every kind of evil, the more he thinks it lawful and imagining it lawful, he is thereby without doubt immersed in it all the more. Okay, right? It's, like, it's just this vicious cycle. It keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Therefore it is written, they have proclaimed abroad their sin as Sodom, and they have not hid it. For if Sodom had concealed its sin, it would still have sinned, but in fear. But it had completely lost the curb of fear, in that it did not seek even darkness in its sinning. Therefore it is said again, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is multiplied. For sin in words is sin in act, but sin that has cried out is sin committed with deliberation. Isn't that an interesting thought from Gregory there? That, I mean, when your, your conscience and your, and your constitution as a human being is so given over to this stuff that you're not even trying to hide it anymore, and you're just proclaiming it to the openness, and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. That's the state that God is saying his people are in. That's where, that's where it says the day of judgment, right? When we watch the video there, and it says, now the day of the Lord is hand, he's going to judge Israel. Yeah, that's, that's what this is, okay? 
And so it continues, right? Woe to the wicked, it'll be ill from them. My people, infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. I mean, everything's kind of turned off. And now there's an interesting analogy that he uses with the women of Zion. And I gave you this. This is just Bible archaeology in the middle of a judgment of Isaiah. Just bizarre. We actually get the, uh, the a description of how they dressed back then. Look at verse 18. I'm going to start right here. And the idea is, is that these women that are walking around are proud and they're kind of strutting their stuff. Okay, you'll see that right there, right? The daughters of Zion are haughty. This is verse 16, in case you're following along. They walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes. They're giving people the look, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will ba lay bare their secret parts. Okay, so in other words, they're women dressed in fiery. This is an image of all of Israel, but he's using the women of, of Israel in this case. And look at this. Look at verse 18. This is fascinating. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scars, the headdresses, the armlets, and the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Isn't that interesting? We get a whole list of things. And so on your second page, I showed you, and it's black and white because I didn't want to waste so much color, you know. But you can see, this is the, the finery of a queen in the pits of Ur. So it's a neighboring culture. So Ur is what we now call uh, Sumeria, Babylon, Assyria. The Israelites wouldn't have been exactly like them, but it would have been similar. Does that make sense? And so this was the finery of a queen. So you can kind of see that as she's kind of there. And I gave you a, a, a quote about that from the Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. That's a, it's a, kind of an archaeology and cultural Bible that goes through some of these cultural practices. And so it talks about what these things are. So it says bangles are ankle bracelets. Headbands are ornaments representing the sun, which are common in Israelite seals, showing Egyptian influence. Crescents or crescent necklaces are like the moon, showing influence from the moon god of Haran or the Canaanites. Of Remember how I said they're compromising with the cultures around them? So now they're even dressing like them. Earrings, literally drops, indicating that their pendants were worn by men and women. And bracelets were also common. Headbands or turbans were worn by Israel and her neighbors. Though it is hard to imagine perfume bottles, which have been found in um, excavations serving as an item of clothing. So they're probably a type of amulet paralleling the charms mentioned next. So it was like a little like a, like a little thing that you had that smelled good. And it was like, oh, I need my good luck charm. You know, that sort of thing. That's what they think it probably is, okay? Signet or seal rings were used by some officials as a symbol of authority. That one you probably are familiar with because that persists all the way into the Middle Ages, right? The idea of having a, a, a signet ring. Okay, they left an impression when placed in the clay writing on the tablet. Other rings were worn in the nose. It's a fascinating thing we get this, but God basically says, you look fantastic and you're strutting your stuff, but it's not going to amount to anything. He says they're going to be exposed. He's going to strike with a scab. Notice what he says in 24. Instead of a perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness, which was hugely shameful, especially for the women um, back then. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth which is a symbol of mourning, by the way. And branding, instead of beauty, you're getting marked as a slave. Okay? Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And look at this. And seven women, this is verse 1 of the next chapter, seven women will take hold of one man that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. So the population, the study note, the Lutheran study Bible explains this really well, it basically says that the population of the males will be so decimated because of war and other things that the once proud women will experience the reproach of lacking children and husbands 
unless they degrade themselves by becoming concubines. Um, women will forego normal cultural patterns of marriage and the desperate attempts to find a husband to support them. This exemplifies the nation's faith. So in other words, it's the, because they're, God's using this plan of women to say that the whole nation is going to be this desperate. It's, it, desperation is the best word that I can think of. Um, it's the name of the game. And so after all that, and this is where I'm going to end today because the bell rang here, so I won't have time. I'll show you next week or a week after the, the video I'm talking about what holiness. But starting in verse 2, this is where, and this, you get this, this darkest picture, day of the Lord, everybody's destitute, women are having to make themselves concubines, nobody wants to be a ruler, God is coming in judgment, and then all of a sudden, ray of light. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion, this is the remnant, and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And so the daughters here are in contrast to the daughters that we just read about. But even more, even though there's a law point, there's a judgment, there's a cleansing, right? There's a restorative gospel message here that in the end, even though all this stuff happens, God himself is going to wash away the filth. God himself is going to get rid of the bloodstains. Notice that he doesn't say, you guys can do it. Notice that he's the one washing. Did you catch that? God's the one washing away. And then later on we have, at the end of this as well, that he's going to be a cloud by day. God himself is going to be with their people, with his people. So we get an image of the city of God again, right? Where, all, where the people are actually in the very presence of God and his, the cloud of God, because it goes back to Exodus, the cloud represented God's presence, right? Leading the people of God. He is now present with his people. All the sins are washed away. There's a canopy and there's a shade from the heat and a refuge from the storm and rain so people are dwelling securely and peacefully at the end of this. So even though God rises in judgment for those, his faithful remnant, there's ultimate peace and destination there. So it's an interesting, and we get that over and over again throughout these first chapters in Isaiah, which is why I'm kind of going quick through three chapters, is because it keeps doing this. So I'm going to kind of skip through. So next week or the week after, I'm looking at the way it, it goes. I want to do Isaiah 6. That's when Isaiah sees God in heaven, and we get the holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabbath, and, is, and Isaiah's like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm in trouble, and then God purifies him, Right? And we get all these things that actually we quote it in worship services. It's the Sanctus, 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 Holy, Holy, Holy. We say that, and that comes from that text. So I want to do Isaiah 6 for sure next week. We'll touch on 5, but I really want to do 6 and get through some of this holiness stuff as we go. And I didn't even give you all the notes, so I gave you this for your own personal study. If you want any of the commentaries or sources that I have on this, I have a lot of these digitally. I'm happy to send them to you, like in an EPUB form or a PDF form. Um, I'm not violating copyright, I don't think, but... <laughs> If, if, you, if you want to know where I'm getting this stuff, though, I can send this to you or at least give you a bibliography um, because I have, like, four or five commentaries and stuff that I'm reading. Uh, comments, questions on this? Hopefully this was helpful. I had to rush at the end, but I think it, I got through most of it anyways. Anything? All right, we'll say the blessing on ourselves and call it good. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments about this sermon, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. 
and make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.